Hey friends, welcome to the Family House Message of the Week podcast. This is Pastor Jason, lead pastor at Family House Fellowship in Cedar Park, Texas. At Family House, we are a family of faith growing towards wholeness in Jesus Christ, heart, mind, and strength, and helping others towards that same wholeness, impacting not only this generation, but future generations. We would love for you to check out more about us on our website. It's familyhousecp.org. Also, you can follow us on social media in all the places, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at FamilyHouseCP. And also, if you wouldn't mind, the best way to continue to see these podcast episodes when they drop is to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform that you love to get your podcasts. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, rate and leave a review. It helps other people find this Message of the Week podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. All right. We're in a season of definition. What does that mean? Well, it's not a series. And it's not a series because a series presupposes that we're going to be done in six weeks, four weeks, six weeks, or eight weeks. And I have no idea. We might be done in four weeks. I doubt we're going to be done in four weeks. Six weeks, maybe. Eight weeks, maybe. I don't know. We might go to Easter on this one. I don't know. We'll find out. But a season of definition, as we discovered last week, is first, the place, the season, where God gets to set the terms. God gets to set the terms in a season of definition. Here's a newsflash. God always gets to set the terms. Now, there are seasons in our life where we are not listening to God's terms, and we are choosing to set our own set of terms. But God is always setting terms. And it's not like the terms of a contract. Although a covenant is a deeper, more loving, more fulfilling version of a contract. The the terms that God wants to set in us are defining. And then we talked about the other part of this is that God wants to define our spiritual muscles. He wants to he wants to tear down and build up. Right? Cuz that's what muscle building is. That's what defining muscles does. Right, we talked about it last week. That when when I go, and honestly, I felt it this morning. Friday, I worked arms and chest, and I woke up this morning and rolled out of bed, and I put my arm on the side of the bed to push myself up, and I was like, "Why does that?" Oh, yeah, I did arms and chest. New personal, new personal best, by the way. Friday, so that's why they hurt, right? But our muscles actually get torn down, get broken down, so that they can heal and be stronger. God wants to do that in our spiritual muscles. And so before we get going, I want to pray and invite God to speak to us as we talk about what this looks like in a deeper way. Father, I just ask you to 
inform us. Spirit, would you be in this place to help us have an understanding of some things maybe we haven't understood before? And that it would change the way we see you, and most importantly, in light of how we see you, how we see ourselves. We love you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bible, turn it to Judges chapter 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. If you're looking. Judges chapter 6. Here's the backstory. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm getting ready to jump into the book of Leviticus in my personal reading and study. And so, the Israelites had been in captivity in Egypt. They came out of Egypt. Moses brought them out of Egypt. He is leading them. And eventually they get to the edge of the promised land. Moses is not going in because Moses didn't do what God asked him to do. And so Moses actually dies before they, he sees the promised land. They, the Israelites see the promised land. But his apprentice Joshua takes over and leads the people into the promised land. They get into the promised land and then eventually Joshua dies. right? Because that's what happens in life, right? And for the first time, Israel is left without a leader. And they're crying out for a king. We need a king. Give us a king, God. And God's like, no, no, no. You don't want a king. You don't need a king. I am your king. You know, we know what a, what a monarchy is. Right? When God is your king, you don't need a human ruler. But the people just wouldn't stop. And God wasn't ready to bring them a king. He eventually would relent and let them have a king. But before that, in times where it was needed, leadership was needed because here's what happens when a nation or a family or a workplace is without a leader, the nation just does whatever it wants. The family just does whatever it wants. It's called anarchy. And so the people had no human leader. There was God had not raised up one person individually. And they began to work in this cycle of disobedience. Israel would go from, from a, a period of honoring God and loving God, and then they would begin to worship the gods in the land where they lived. Right? I don't know if you remember this, or if you've ever heard this from Scripture, but, in, but God told Israel before they entered the Promised Land, you need to go in there and wipe them all out. Now it seems harsh, right? Like God's going to wipe out those people. I don't have time to go into all of it today. There's some intricacies there, some history with the people that were in the land. 
and Noah, God was actually honoring his covenant with Noah and his personal feelings for these for this group of people who continued to be disobedient. And it was one of the reasons why he was okay wiping them out. But they didn't do what God asked them to do. He told them, if you don't wipe them out, this is what's going to happen. You are going to begin to think like they think. Your kids are going to marry their, their your sons are going to marry their daughters. And then they're going to bring their gods and their idols into your, into your homes. And you're going to forget me and you're going to start worshiping them. He told them exactly what was going to happen if, right? If you do this, then this is what's going to happen. And they didn't listen. And he, God told them, do not make treaties with them. Do not do anything. Wipe them off the planet. They didn't do it. And this is where we are. We're in this cycle of disobedience. The people are now worshiping other gods. And so God, from time to time, would raise up a judge. They were called judges. God would raise up a judge to bring truth and leadership. Now, we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. If you read the entire book of Judges, you start to think, well, this doesn't feel like it's in chronological order. Well, it's probably not. Because the way the way the, the Israel wrote its history down was in themes so that you would understand the, the, the process of God moving amongst the people and not necessarily like we do. Like we, we read histories like we read history books, right? You, you open the history book. If you open an American history book, you're going to start with colonization from England to the New World, right? That's where you're going to start. And then you're going to move through the revolution, and then you're going to move into the Civil War, and then you're going to, right? It's going to be chronological. But that's not how Israel wrote their history. They wrote it in themes. So it's quite possible that some of these judges were raised up at the exact same times or adjacent each other very closely in other parts of Israel. They weren't all one right after another. And so we just come out of a story in chapter 5 about the judge Deborah, and we jump right in to a uh, talk of disobedience. You're like, well, th did they forget that quick? Well, no, not necessarily. Might have just been a different region. We're, today we're going to talk about who Gideon Judges chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Oh, first, following this cycle of disobedience, like as this cycle of disobedience is going on, God sends a prophet. We have no idea who, who it was. We, they're not named in Scripture. It's one of the few prophets that's actually not named in Scripture. There was a prophet that God raised up to speak the truth first. It's sort of like a John the Baptist moment, right? If you think about it, Jesus' time prior to Jesus, God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way, right? He was telling the truth. He's like, you need to repent of your sins. Like, the one is coming. You better get ready, right? That's sort of what God does here. He raises up a prophet to say, hey, listen, we got some problems here. I don't know if you've looked at yourself in the mirrors lately. It doesn't exactly line up with who God is. So that's where we're going to start. The, it's, I actually don't have this part on the screen. 
The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. That's an important part. Important thing to, to note is that the Midianites invaded Israel. And it wasn't like, you know, say if Canada decided tomorrow they were going to invade the United States and march an army down here. First of all, that would never happen because the Canadians are too nice. They're too pacifists. They're not going to do it. But if they did, they would, you know, there would be a systematic way. Like the armies would come in, like they'd start, you know, planes would drop bombs. You know, you know how we do it in modern warfare. That's not how this was. There were times when armies marched in and overtook lands, but that's not what the Midianites were. The Midianites were like the first guerrilla warfare peoples. They were like, almost like terrorists in pockets. They would just show up out of nowhere and do things that like were uncivilized, even in this uncivilized time. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. The Israelites were so afraid of the Midianites and what they were doing to them that they hid. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel. Camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes, coming, from, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count. And they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israelite was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. I had, I have, I have written in my Bible right there, only then it took that to cry out to the Lord. Verse 7, when they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But you have not listened to That's the backstory. That's where we are in Israel at this time. Verse 11. This should be coming up on the screen. Then the angel of the Lord came. Stop there for a second. The angel of the Lord came. It is, a, it, is a belief, it is a common belief among theologians that when the Bible mentions the angel of the Lord came, it's actually Jesus. When the angel is unnamed, and they're named the angel of the Lord, it's actually Jesus. And I'm gonna, I'll point out to you why the belief is there in just a second. The angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abazer. 
Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midians. Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. First thing I want to point out here, we're, we're talking today about God setting the terms. He gets to tell me who I am. What's my identity? And so when God sets the terms, and He tells us who we are, we ought to listen. Jesus set the term. He declared Gideon's identity. He said, Mighty hero. Some translations call it mighty warrior. The Lord is with you. Jesus shows up and declares Gideon's identity right off the bat. He addresses him as he sees him. Here's, here's, a, here's a spiritual principle. Jesus sees you in the way that you were created and with what you were created for. That's how Jesus sees you. Jesus doesn't see you through the eyes of your sin, through the harm or hurt in your past. He doesn't see you even in the condition that He finds you in in the moment that He sees you. He sees you through the lens of one, His perfection and the work on the cross and the ultimate kingdom purpose that He has for your life. That's how Jesus sees you. We see ourselves in a completely different way than that. Right? We see ourselves only through the lens of what we've been through, what we've done in our lives, the bad decisions we've made, the sin that we just can't get through and over. That's how we see it. We look in the mirror and we see disappointment. We see despair. We see grief. We see destruction. We see bad choices. Jesus sees himself and how he made you. So we tend to push back against God and dismiss his terms. Right? Jesus comes to Gideon and he says, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. So in Verse 13, we'll pick up the story there. He says, Gideon says, Sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Let 
And then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. We question God. This is the first thing Gideon does. He's like, yeah, I don't really believe that the Lord's with us. If he was with us, if the Lord was with me, I wouldn't be standing here in this wine press threshing wheat. Right? He's hiding. Gideon is hiding. You do not thresh wheat, right? I don't know if you know much about threshing wheat, but in those days, now we have machines that do such things. In those days, if they were threshing, threshing is basically separating the part of the wheat that is good for food from the part that isn't. And they would, if they were threshing a lot of, of wheat at once, they would use oxen to do it. They would spread the wheat out on the ground and they would run the oxen over it back and forth to crush the pods and break open and separate. But if they were only threshing a little, they would, they would do it themselves. They would stomp up and down on it. You would not, although, although threshing wheat and pressing wine, pressing wine out of grapes is a similar process of of using pressure, you wouldn't do it in the same place. Because a wine press is, is enclosed, sunken into the ground, and it usually has some sort of a, a tray or like tunnel system that runs the wine downhill into a basin. So it would actually be more difficult to get the wheat out of a wine press for, for use. Plus, who knows? The wine press might be wet. You wouldn't necessarily want to put dry wheat in a wet wine press. But there Gideon is threshing his own wheat in the wine press. Why? Because the, Midian, the Midianites were coming for them. Anytime Israel showed up, anyone from Israel showed up with crops, they'd steal them. So he was threshing a little bit of wheat for his family in a wine press, trying to do it under the cover of the wine press. And Gideon's asking the question, God, if, if you were with us, I shouldn't be standing in this wine press hiding from my life, my literal life, because I'm, I'm trying to provide food for my family without it getting stolen so that we can actually have a meal. Because we're hungry. We're starving. We're hiding. God's response is, go, with, go in the strength that you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I'm sending you. We question God's character. Well, if, God was, if God was good, I wouldn't be in this mess. If God was good, I wouldn't be hungry. If God was good, right, we, we say those kinds of things all the time, right? If God was really good, there shouldn't be bad things in the world. If God was good, there wouldn't be hungry kids. 
If God was good, there'd be no need for police officers. If God was good, you fill in the blank. We question God's character. I don't think you are who you say you are. That's what Gideon was saying to Jesus. And then, Gideon says in 15, but Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. I don't know if you know anything about the tribes of Israel, but there are 12, and they are broken down by the, by the sons of Jacob. And, but inside the 12, I don't know, there's a story at the end of Jacob's life where he blesses Joseph's sons. And Joseph's sons were, I believe, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so inside the tribe of Joseph are two many tribes. And so Gideon, when he says, I am literally from the weakest, I'm, my clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh. He's saying, my tribe isn't even real. Like it doesn't even have a full, like it's not a full thing. Like it's, it's a half thing in the middle of this other thing. And inside my little bitty tribe, my clan is literally the weakest. And so what Gideon is doing is he's actually saying, I question me. First he questions God's character. He says, God, I'm not sure, well, first I'm not sure you're God. And I'm not sure God is even real because I'm not seeing him in front of me right now. And then Gideon says, you know, on top of that, I'm, I'm not even, I'm weak. I am not what you're saying. I do not identify with the words that are coming out of your mouth. It's like Gideon says, you, you couldn't possibly be talking to me. It's like, I picture this happening where Jesus shows up in front of Gideon and he says, mighty warrior. And Gideon's going, standing behind me? Like, who are you talking to? Are you talking to, are you talking to me? Are you sure you don't have the wrong number? But we do this all the time. Maybe we hear something from the Lord. We hear something from the Lord and we say, yeah, I don't think, no, no, that's not for me. Couldn't be for me. I couldn't possibly do that. I think, God, I think you got the wrong number. You must have dialed the wrong prayer line on this one. And then in 16, the Lord said to him, I will be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. 
And Gideon replied, if you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. That's the next thing we do. Like, okay, first, we don't believe it's God. And secondly, when we can no longer refute that it could be God, like we were like in the back of our minds, like, well, maybe it is God. Like, but you, God, you got it wrong. Like, it's not me. Couldn't be me. Like, you couldn't want to talk to me. The next thing we do is we go, okay, God, if it's really you and you really meant to talk to me, I'm going to need you to show me a sign. We ask for proof. Like, God, I'm going to need you to give me some proof here. Because I don't think this is for me. And ultimately, we're saying we're not sure whether God even exists at all. And so then Gideon says, Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you, he answered. I will stay here until you return. Said this, said the angel of the Lord. Gideon hurried home. He cooked a young goat, and with a basket of flour, he baked some bread without yeast. Then carrying the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, he brought them out and presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. The angel of God said to him, place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and bread with the tip of the staff in his hand, and he flamed up from the rock, it flamed up from the rock and consumed all he had brought, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Here's what I know. Even in the middle of our doubt about who God is, in the middle of our doubt about who we are, in the middle of our doubt on whether God got his wires crossed and he's talking to the wrong person, he thinks we're somebody else, God is always good to meet us where we are with patience and to show us who he actually is. The angel of the Lord touched the offering with his staff and it burned up with fire. Gideon had just said, hey, if, if God's really with me, like, why am I not seeing all these miracles that my ancestors told us about? And God's like, okay, if it's going to take circus tricks, here's a circus trick. Right? And I don't mean, I don't, I don't mean to, to make it sound like trite. Because God's never trite. If you think back on some things like in the Exodus story when Moses was trying to convince Pharaoh to let his people go, God gave him some things to do with a staff. Right? He's like, drop your staff, it'll turn into a snake. Touch, touch the Nile with your staff and it'll turn to blood. And, and all of these things up to a certain point, all of Pharaoh's magicians could replicate. Why? Because... They were actually doing circus tricks. And so when I say, like, God's like, okay, you want, you, need, you want to see a circus trick? I'll show you one. But he did exactly what Gideon would have expected by the stories that he would have been told from his ancestors. 
right? He would have been told all of the amazing signs and wonders that were done in Egypt when they were coming out of captivity. And God shows up in the place where Gideon was, literally and spiritually. He showed up in his literal location in front of his face, but he also showed up exactly where Gideon was spiritually. So that Gideon would know not just what God wanted him to do, but that he would know who God made him to be. God is always good to meet us where we are with patience and show us who he is. So going on. That night the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal. Cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Okay, we'll stop there for a second. So, God's preparing. So here's, here's, I'll go back just a second for just a second and say this. Here's where we know that the angel of the Lord is Jesus. Because the angel of the Lord disappears, but the voice he heard is still talking. And scripture switches who, who, who they refer to him as. Now it's God. Real quick. This is a very complex thing, right? We, and we've talked about it a couple of times, like the, the complexity of the Trinity, right? God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here is the best way I've ever heard it explained so that it's easy to understand. God is the type, right? Like, we're all humans in here. But some of us are men, and some of us are women. That's the specific part, kind of human we are. God is the kind. It's, the, it's, the, it's the, the type of thing we're talking about. We're not talking about humans, we're talking about gods. God is big G God because he is the only true God. But inside of God, there are three types. There's a son, there's a father, and there's a Jesus. Oh, that's a Jesus. I already said that. Son, father, spirit. Jesus, spirit, father. They all have different roles, but they all encompass the same God. And they all share the same power. Jesus, who is God, he's part of that. He, he is God. It's what type he is. He's just specifically a Jesus. He's specifically son. Jesus came in a form that Gideon would resonate with. And the voice he heard was Jesus all of which is God. God spoke, the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd for one, the one that is seven years old. I love the specificity which God is intricately involved in our lives. 
He knows every single bull that's in Gideon's household. Not that one, the seven-year-old one. And then he says, pull down your father's altar to Baal. I don't know if you remember this back in the very first part. I said, the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer, Gideon, son of Joash. Joash was actually a priest. He was an Israelite but he was a priest in the church of Baal. That's how far gone they had gone. Like, we now have Israelites who are actually becoming priests for foreign false gods. So he's like, Gideon, the first step I need you to do is I need you to get your house right. Now you know who you are. You know who I am. You need to get your house in order. So Gideon... Pull down your father's altar to Baal. Cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. That might seem trivial. Why is God asking him to do this? Well, one, get your house in order. You know what's right now. You know who's who in this equation. You know who I am. You know who you are. Are you going where I'm asking you to go? Is your family going where I'm asking you to go? So he tears all those things down. But the bull was a real sacrifice. Think about it. If the Midianites were pillaging the land and stealing their livestock, this seven-year-old bull meant a lot. It was food. And God's saying, put it on the altar and sacrifice it. It's a step. It's a step of faith. And we're going to get into the last part of Gideon's life next week. And this is one step of faith. And like, this is the easiest step of all the steps that God puts Gideon in. He says, so Gideon... I love the fact, I love the fact that God asked him to use the Asherah pole as fuel for the fire. Right? Pull down all of those things for the false gods. Asherah poles were basically this, this, this place of worship to a false god of fertility. Right? That that was subject to the god false god Baal. And he's like, take down the altar to Baal. Take down the Asherah pole and then throw the Asherah pole on the altar to me and use it as fuel for the fire to burn up the offering you're making to me. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded. But he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. We're not quite there yet with Gideon. He's taking baby steps, right? Which, there's a spiritual principle here for us. The next right step is a right step. The next right step is a right step. If you're taking the next right step towards God, you're going in the right direction, no matter how tiny that step is. There's a, there's a passage in the Old Testament that says, 
Despise not small beginnings. We're not going to despise small beginnings. We're going we're to treat them as they are. They're steps towards God. However little it is. Maybe you've never spent time daily reading the Scriptures. The first right step is to, get, is to say, Today, God, I'm going to read the Bible for five minutes. Five minutes of God's Word is better than no minutes of God's Word. Right? There's this old adage among preachers everywhere. People say, Hey, Pastor Jason, what is the best Bible translation for me to read? I'm going to tell you, the one you'll actually read. Well, is it, is it, is it the most accurate? I don't care if it's the one you'll read. Do not despise small beginnings. Gideon was not fully the mighty warrior yet that God declared him to be but he was taking steps toward it. He was taking steps toward his true identity in God. He did not believe quite yet that he was a mighty warrior completely, but he had the God of the universe standing before him, and he knew it without a doubt. And So he took a step, even if it wasn't exactly the public step maybe that God wanted. God promises to go with us. We're not on this journey of discovering ourselves in in God's kingdom alone. He promises to go with us. So I want to ask the question today as we transition to communion time. What is God saying about you? One of the things that you can do, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna flesh all of this out as we walk through this season. What does it look like? How do, I, how do I do this? How do I actually get with God on some of these things? The best way to figure out who, who, who am I is to ask God the question. For some reason, we're, we're hesitant to ask God questions. Like, we make a lot of statements to God. We make a lot of requests of God. We ask very few questions, and He's the one with all the answers. The best question you can ask yourself in terms of identity, who am I, is God, how do you see me? How do you see me? When you ask God how He sees you, He's going to show up and tell you. So we need to lean in to what God has for us in terms of truth about us. It's not selfish or self-seeking to ask the Lord about us because most of us aren't fixed on what thing God wants to do in us anyway at this moment. We're, we're, we're so focused on what's going on in our lives. We're so focused on the, on the hard stuff and the details and the busyness that we don't take time to actually say, God, how do you see me? Asking God, how do you see me, is actually an alignment statement. 
It's an alignment statement. It's saying, it's a question that seeks alignment. It's going, God, I want to be where you, where you see me. I want to be a part of the things that you want me to be a part of. I want to, I want to do your will. And in doing so, God responds to us because he's always looking for hearts that are seeking to do his will. Asking God, God, how do you see me is a lot less selfish than praying for that new car or that different job or that different house, even though God is, honors all those prayers. So Jesus, we come before your table today. We thank you. We thank you that as we meet you here, you are declaring things over us. You're declaring who we are in light of who you are, because we are nothing without you. We've tried to set up our own kingdoms. We have our own Asherah poles. We have our own Baal altars. So Father, we, we, we are determined to tear them down and burn them as an offering to you today, as we remember who you are and what you've done. So we take the bread, we break it, we remember it's his broken body. This solidifies, this solidifies our identity in Christ. And then we take the juice and we remember it's his blood, which was poured out for us so that we come with a blank slate. It's his blood, it's the filter of his blood that allows Jesus to see us as we were created to be, not as we've walked in this life. So we take it and we remember. Jesus, I pray identity. I pray kingdom identity over everyone in this room today. Would we seek to know what you think about us? Would we seek to know who you say we are? Would we seek to allow you to define us because your ways are always better just like Gideon discovered no matter hard the road that you might direct us no matter how many things we might see culturally get pushed back on because you've asked us to walk a certain direction we're going to stay true because we know that the best place we can be is in the middle of your will in the middle of your vision for us Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your blood. We thank you for your resurrection. In Jesus' name. Thanks for being here. Love you. Stack a chair. <laughs>